0: Hello, oh, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Amon Gabru Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Yeshiva University Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. We will discuss his article, Patents, Disclosure, and Biopiracy, which will be published in the Denver Law Review. So welcome to the show, Amon. Thank you for having me, Brian. So... I uh, I really enjoyed reading your paper, uh, especially because I've been trying to read more about patent law and about um, traditional knowledge recently. And uh, I had, as you, I think, recall, uh, Jan Osai Tutu on the program a little while ago, engaging with some similar ideas, but in in a different way. Um, so I was wondering if you could start uh, the interview by by explaining to reader or to listeners what traditional knowledge is and and why
1: it's important, uh, sure. Um, um, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I listen to your podcast quite often, and and listening to Genoa's uh, kind of talk was really interesting. And in different ways, it connects with mine. Um, so traditional knowledge, um, I define it. Uh, very narrowly compared to other people in my field. Uh, and I define it as the know how, the skills, the innovations and practices of indigenous people and local communities. Uh, so this is a narrower definition, and the contrast would be a much broader definition, which would include uh, what I just defined as traditional knowledge, but also um, sorts of cultural expressions, uh, artifacts. Uh, things that you would not necessarily associate uh, with with knowledge, uh, quote unquote, as in you know knowledge, know how, or, or, or tacit knowledge, if you will, uh, but some sorts of expression, cultural expressions, um, uh, physical things such as artifacts. Um, so some scholars in my uh, area of research do include uh, all of these things to be traditional knowledge, um, but I choose this um, narrower definition because I think it lends itself to a more um, in-depth analysis of what we're uh, thinking of uh, when we say traditional knowledge. And it does relate to um, to the extent that you want to look at intellectual property issues. Um, it relates more to subject matters that would be protected under patent law, um, as opposed to, say, copyrights or trademarks, um, in that it's looking at know-how um, as the subject matter.
0: So why is traditional knowledge important in a patent context? In other words, h- how does it get used by people who are engaging with the patent system and what kind of resources, uh, traditional knowledge resources are available? In other words, what what kind of information are people using it and how are they using it?
1: Um, yes. So um, there are multiple types of traditional knowledge. Uh, so if we were zooming into that uh, term itself, we find different um, Groupings, so traditional agricultural knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge, uh, traditional environmental knowledge. So you can divide it into its subparts. But to give you an example of what uh, types of knowledge I'm talking about is, you know, uh, the best example I can think of is when, uh, say, a pharmaceutical researcher, um, you know learns about the traditional practice that a certain community has of using uh, certain parts, uh, roots, or leaves of a, a plant to treat a disease, um, and so the that traditional knowledge of you know using certain parts of the tree, um, you know how to extract say oil, um, how to apply it to the body, and the like, all of that would be traditional knowledge. Uh, and the typical example would be that the pharmaceutical researcher uh, learns of this traditional practice. Um, tries to extract the active ingredient from the plant and then develops it uh, into a you know patentable drug uh, that's hopefully uh, ultimately approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and so that's how it is relevant for patent discussions, where you know patent law does protect the um, innovation that arises from um, any different uh, fields. But if if the inventor, so to say, has used um, traditional knowledge at the beginning of that process um, and either develops it into a patentable uh, invention that meets the uh, novelty and non-obviousness requirements. Um, the question then is, you know, currently patent law rewards the person at the end of that innovation process. Um, but what do we uh, say about the inputs that people provide uh, earlier in that process, right? So what do the communities say about um, whether they have a right uh, or, or some sort of claim, not even a, a right in, in terms of legal rights, but uh, do they have any sorts of claim in the earlier knowledge of that, um, you know, quote unquote, invented knowledge or protected knowledge at the end of that spectrum?
0: So why do inventors rely on traditional knowledge? Does it help them innovate more efficiently?
1: Yes. So um, there are, uh, you know, a few empirical research projects that have been done on this topic. Um, And um, a lot of them come out of the pharmaceutical industry uh, area. uh, But there are others in, say, environmental conservation, uh, agricultural practices and the like. Uh, But um, sticking to the pharmaceutical example, um, a number of research projects uh, starting from the 1990s, uh, show that you know researchers have two alternative ways of um, developing drugs or or treatments uh, in general. One is to um, kind of use the the common. Uh, I don't know if I should call it common, but one option is where uh, you take, for example, thousands of plant samples, uh, run them through um, high functioning machines, and you just hope to get a hit, uh, a hit meaning uh, kind of um, a plant that has interesting chemical um, features to it, uh, active ingredients that you can use. The other option is uh, kind of a shortcut uh, of saying, oh, there are communities out there in the world that had um, used plants and animals and other kind of uh, minerals as input in um, treating, addressing a lot of health issues that they have. And so instead of just in abstract, uh, blindly screening um, kind of uh, samples, let's learn from these communities that have used this for centuries uh, and and kind Mm -hmm. of use it as a shortcut. So uh, the empirical research shows that uh, significant uh, improvements are achieved if you uh, use traditional knowledge. So um, your chances of getting an active ingredient from a plant um, increases a lot if you use traditional knowledge. So in one project, for example, um, this is from the nine, 1991, I believe, um, a paper looked at a certain sample um, and said the, your chances of getting a preliminary hit, which is the first kind of uh, interesting sample that you get from the thousands of sample. So your chances of getting uh, a preliminary hit increase from 6% without the use of traditional knowledge to 25% with the use of traditional knowledge. And so it's that increase, I think, that researchers are relying on uh, when they use traditional knowledge. Um, because of the value of traditional knowledge, you see uh, all sorts of uh, journals. So Ethnopharma, uh, the Journal of Ethnopharmacology uh, is one of the more famous ones. Uh, that is dedicated to this type of research, which is using traditional knowledge to develop um, interesting modern uh, drugs and treatments.
0: So y- you give a- several different examples of you know how inventors have used traditional knowledge in your paper. I thought the neem tree extract one was particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of share the background behind that? Maybe we can use that as an example to think about the proposals relating to disclosure that you advance in your paper?
1: Um, Sure. Um, So the neem tree is is one of my favorite cases, actually, when I talk about these issues. Um, And so basically what happens here is the the neem tree uh, is native to India uh, and and countries in that region. Uh, Traditional farmers in India um, use the neem tree for multiple, um, um, you know, uh, reasons, but one of them is they extract the oil from the neem tree and use it as a pesticide. Um, now, So the traditional practice uh, generally results in an oil extract that has a shelf life of two to three days. Um, and so you really have to use it right away after you extract the oil, uh, but it does function as a pesticide. Um, so what happened here is uh, a person by the name of uh, Robert Larson, who is a timber importer, based in uh, Wisconsin. Um, in his timber importing business, he learns of the value of the neem tree and, and how Indian farmers use the tree. Um, and then based on this knowledge, he imports uh, uh, neem tree samples and then conducts research. Uh, and then to his credit, he I know it takes him years uh, when he, he conducts the research, but ultimately he succeeds in um, producing a, a a stable neem tree extract, which has a shelf life of up to two years, according to the patent application. Um, and so, after he was able to, uh, you know, develop a, a stored stable neem tree extract, he then applied for and received a U.S. patent right. Um, and then, in the patent application, he makes he mentions India twice, but um, only in passing, uh, and he mentions. Kind of the the tree grows in India, uh, and and, you know, as an example, you can import this tree from India. But he really doesn't uh, mention at all uh, the fact that uh, millions of Indian farmers actually use this tree as a pesticide. Uh, But in any case, he receives the patent right, um, and then he licenses the patent right to the chemical conglomerate, uh, W.R. Grace. Uh, The company uses the patent to then uh, you know kind of. Create a monopoly in the market uh, to produce a product called Nemix, which is a pesticide, um, and it grosses over sixty million dollars in global annual sales. Um, and so, when the patenting of the neem tree was, dis- or the neem tree extract rather, uh, was disclosed, uh, and that this product is, you know, globally being used, um, Indian farmers and, and community leaders in India were outraged um, in what they thought is kind of what they called actually. Um, you know, um, colonization by by patents, if you will, um, or, or biopiracy generally, um, and that this knowledge has been uh, conserved and, and developed by communities in India, but the person that gets an exclusive right uh, um, is a kind of a researcher, if you will, or, or a, an importer in the U.S. And so, you um, You know, why I use this example is to show kind of the dynamics between the different stakeholders, Uh, um, you know, Indian farmers, Mr. Larson, who actually does innovate on the traditional practice. And then at the end of it, the Indian government being pressured into challenging the patentability of uh, this invention. And then ultimately, which I call is kind of, the, which I flag as being the biggest problem, which is the Indian government shutting down its um, kind of borders to researchers. So now, in reaction to all of this kind of um, biopiracy examples or so cases of biopiracy, multiple countries that used to be kind of hotspots of uh, biodiversity and traditional knowledge are closing down. Um, and that's exactly what happened here where the Indian government uh, has introduced legislations uh, that makes it harder for researchers to, to use this type of knowledge.
0: Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of disclosure mm-hmm. in the patent system, in particular, how it kind of played out in the Neemtree oil
1: case. Sure. Um, so um, as anybody that has taken patent law kind of can relate, there are two types of values of disclosure, but maybe stepping um, um, back a little bit. Um, so there's a social contract in in the patent system, in, in the US, but also in other countries, where um, the society gives the patent applicant an exclusive right to use uh, his or her invention in exchange for disclosing kind of background, contextual information about that, that invention, right? So there's this exchange that's happening between the public and the patent applicant. Um, and so that social contract, I argue, is bridged when the patent applicant kind of receives an exclusive right without necessarily disclosing all of the information uh, about their invention. Um, and so I see the value of disclosure uh, which is a kind of a key function of the patent system, uh, is to disclose information. Uh, the first function is to teach the community, right? To say, um, here's the cutting edge innovation. Here's the, the kind of the most up-to-date information about a certain um, area of research. So that's the teaching function, uh, right? That's, that's valuable. And the second function is kind of the limiting function of patent disclosure, uh, which is where you say, you know, here's what others have done, and I, don't, I can't claim property rights over that, uh, when whatever others have done, but here's what the kind of the new thing that I've uh, developed or invented is, and therefore I'm claiming property rights over it. Right? So by disclosing, you're also limiting the scope of your right. right? So the the meets and bounds of your patent right uh, would be set up because of the disclosure. So this teaching and kind of limiting function of disclosure is really key in the patent system. Um, what happened in the name tree example? is that the applicant um, you know, received an exclusive right over the kind of the neem tree extract without necessarily disclosing all of the information that's relevant for the, the scope and the validity of the patent right. Uh, and so my argument there is you know, Mr. Larson by withholding the existence of a traditional practice in India of using this neem tree oil as, an, uh, as a pesticide is getting at least a broader right than he deserves uh, or uh, you know is is getting a patent right that he might not deserve in the first place, right? So if the information um, would be disclosed or would have been disclosed to the patent uh, examiner in the ideal sense, and the patent examiner would then you know be able to fully examine the validity and the scope of the right, uh, including using the traditional knowledge as a prior art
0: is there currently an obligation for inventors to disclose the use of traditional knowledge when they file a patent obligation? And if so, you know, why aren't they doing it? And what consequences are there, if any, if
1: the failure to disclose is, is discovered? Um, That's really a very key question in this research, right? And and I'm glad you brought it up, Ryan. Um, So, my paper you know, states that, and, and I you know, kind of make this point clearly in my talks as well, where arguably I think traditional knowledge is already a requirement in the U.S. patent system. Um, and as I imagine in many other uh, patent systems, disclosure is a key part of the patent process or the patent examination process. Um, and so I argue that traditional knowledge is relevant and is required to be disclosed. Uh, but it's, it's a complex matter. And my, my paper is trying to make the case that it the requirements should be made explicit for a number of reasons, right? So let me just first address the question of whether it's actually required now or not. Um, so the U.S. patent system says, you know, Rule 56 and looking at a lot of the disclosure requirements, uh, including uh, Section 112 and other sections, you know, what, your response to the question of what am I required to disclose in the patent application, um, it's a very re- robust Requirement uh, and the answer is anything that's materially relevant for the patent examination, Uh, it might be validity or scope of your right, you'll have to disclose. And it's even it goes further than that and says, you know, you should use the broadest interpretation available there. So you take each claim in the patent application uh, and given each claim the broadest scope possible, uh, the question would be: would the patent examiner Um, deem that information relevant for the validity uh, examination or not. And if your answer is yes, then uh, you have to disclose that information. So given how broad and robust this requirement is, I say arguably traditional knowledge is uh, relevant. It's covered within this requirement and that applicants should already disclose it. Um, uh, The American Invents Act uh, that came into effect in uh, 2013 is relevant here where uh, prior to the American Invents Act, um, applicants in U.S. patent applications uh, were not were not required to disclose information outside of the U.S. Um, if it's undocumented, right? So if it's documented and it's outside the U.S., you have to disclose it to the U.S. patent examiner. Uh, but if it's undocumented and outside of the U.S., uh, it's not going to be used in the patent examination. Right? So the patent applicant did not have that application, um, which, you know, th- it was just a unique and really uh, kind of weird future of the U.S. patent system, and many scholars criticized it for years, Um, and to the credit of the U.S. legislators, they changed that to say, we do care about knowledge outside of the U.S. uh, as being relevant for patent examination, and so now, uh, after 2013, uh, patent examiners do have an obligation uh, to look at that, and patent applicants do have the obligation to disclose information outside of the U.S., even if it's not documented. Um, While this reform is welcomed, the American Invents Act did not give um, patent examiners any realistic tool um, of, of accessing this traditional knowledge outside of the U.S., right? So you can imagine a U.S. patent examiner sitting in Washington, D.C., uh, would have an even higher uh, kind of barrier in accessing uh, traditional practice uh, around, halfway around the corner, um, you know, being practiced by communities that don't speak English. Uh, and so... This lack of access of that knowledge means that even if um, in the books, the black letter law does require the disclosure of this information, patent examiners don't really have the realistic tool um, to access that that information. Um, And really, so ultimately, my question is, you know, not we should not only care about what the law says, we should care about what how the law is practiced in reality, uh, and the reality is that the patent examiners, patent applicants, only disclose you know prior patents that are relevant for their uh, the current patent application or scientific journals that are published prior to the patent application. Uh, that really um, you know patent uh, the patent examination process does not look at information that's not documented in this kind of scientifically organized way, uh, and therefore when you look at the reality, um, we're not using traditional knowledge is predominantly uncodified. Uh, It's kind of orally documented, if you will, uh, orally transmitted from one generation to the other. Um, And it means that because this knowledge is predominantly oral in nature, it's excluded from the patent system at all uh, in general. And and therefore, my argument is, you know, we should really care about how the law is being practiced in reality, and uh, we should compensate for that by introducing explicit requirements for the introduction of traditional knowledge in the patent system.
0: Yeah. And in your paper, you talk about the idea of information forcing rules Mm -hmm. and how they ought to structure the way we think about the disclosure requirement and penalties for failure to disclose. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was a really interesting concept and that you did a great job of sort of deploying it in this particular context.
1: Um, Sure. Yeah. That's one of the exciting things about this paper uh, was it's one of the original things that I was uh, hoping to kind of bring to the conversation here is to tap into this literature on information forcing rules and and see if that helps us here. Um, So the information forcing rules literature was developed in other areas of intellectual, um, in other areas of law, um, particularly in contract law. Um, And basically what it, it says is if you have a situation where Um, You have two or more than two um, actors in a relationship, in a dealing, uh, and one of the parties is well-informed, that is, has more information, secretly held information that the other party does not have access to. Um, And because of that secretly held information, the well-informed party... Um, be you know behaves in the strategic way of withholding that secretly held information, um, and blocking a socially desirable outcome, which is a dealing between the two parties, from taking place, um, or you know from kind of creating a situation where the optimal outcome would not be realized because the kind of the private gain of that party is larger than the. of the the pie the benefit to the public Um, in those situations what the information forcing rules literature says is legislators can um, introduce legal interventions that are meant to uh, compel the well-informed party to disclose the secretly held information um, thereby enabling the socially desirable outcome to be realized. Right? So that security and information would either be disclosed to the other party in that dealing or to the general public or to courts or to legislators uh, in enabling that socially desirable outcome to be realized. Um, so to give an example kind of outside of the patent context, um, you know, a lot of employees in the U.S. believe that their employment uh, relationship with their employer is um, kind of and at will, uh, so just cause employment, in that they believe that they would have to do something wrong for their employer to uh, have the ground to fire them. Uh, but in reality, most employment relationships in the U.S. are at will, um, in that the employer can fire employees uh, f- without any cause, and the employee um, can also kind of quit their job uh, without cause. Um, and so, looking at this from the contract context. This is not a socially optimal relationship where the parties are entering into employment relationships without having full information about their relationship. Um, And so what the information forcing rules literature says is to force the well-informed party, which is the employer in this case, uh, to disclose the secretly held information, which is the at-will nature of the relationship, to the the less-informed party, which is the employee. Uh, and the way you do that is to intervene legally and say the default would be uh, um, an at, you know just cause relationship uh, in terms of employment, unless the employer explicitly tells the other party that this is an at will uh, relationship. So what you're doing there is you're creating a socially desirable outcome, uh, which is an employer and employee entering into employment relationships with full information of the nature of the relationship. Um, and so, how I use that uh, in the patent context is to say, in cases of uh, patent applications that rely on traditional knowledge, the well-informed party is the patent applicant, uh, and the less informed party is the patent examiner, who does not have enough information about the kind of the background and the context of the invention. Um, and so, what we can do here is to introduce a rule. That says your patent application would be invalidated if you um, withhold your use of traditional knowledge in the research process, uh, and that you know the patent examiner or other entities later on find out that you um, you know withheld information that you should have disclosed prior to the patent application or prior to the patent being granted. Um, and really, so what we're doing here is compelling the well-informed party, which is the patent applicant, to disclose this secretly held information, which is the their reliance on traditional knowledge, and thereby make it easier for patent examiners to examine the validity and the scope of the patent application. Um, and so kind of zooming out of the technicalities of this relationship, uh, when you look at the way we give patents or we, the way we analyze the validity of a patent, it's really, the relationship is, is um, it's not a leveled relationship, right? So patent examiners, uh, one research I think said, uh, have 18 hours per patent application to examine the validity of the patent. And when, but when you look at the patent, the time that the patentee, the inventor, spent in developing the invention it's it's it could take years uh, usually it's more than uh, a year or two um, and so the patent applicant just has a wealth of information that the patent examiner would not be able to examine within 18 hours and so what we're trying to do is you know, get the information out there in the system from the list coast provider of that information which is the party that has um, information about the use of traditional knowledge for example Um, And my paper makes the point that, you know, although this is a problem in the patent system in general, it's really, uh, you know, really troubling when you look at the applications that rely on traditional knowledge, because patent examiners have even harder time accessing traditional knowledge uh, that's usually non-documented, or if it's documented, it's documented in knowledge um, in languages that are inaccessible to U.S. patent examiners.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I I thought it was also interesting the way that you suggest that in certain circumstances that mere invalidation wouldn't be enough to create the efficient incentive
1: for applicants. W- why is that, and what's the alternative? Um, yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really that's another part where I think the paper is trying to contribute and um, say something new about the, the kind of the issue. Uh, so in the literature, you see people saying, you know basically proposing general solutions to general problems. And what I've tried to do in this paper is kind of unpack the issues and say, really, how is this issue dealt in uh, in patent law? So what I've done is invited people to think in terms of spectrum. So you have a spectrum where, um, you know, on one side, on the left-hand side, um, you know, when you're asking the question of how much disclosure, uh, not how much disclosure, what should trigger the requirement to disclose. Uh, you're asking the question of, you know, how much reliance on traditional knowledge, how much use of traditional knowledge um, should there be for us to require disclosure? You know, what should be the, tre- the trigger uh, for for disclosure? And so on the left hand side, I kind of group kind of relationships between the researcher and traditional knowledge in in terms of inspiration. So the researcher is inspired by traditional knowledge, but really um, they don't use traditional knowledge um, after that. They basically are inspired by how communities do things and then they go off and do research in other areas. Um, So in those cases, I say disclosure should not exist uh, and failure to disclose kind of Inspirations should not result in any penalty. But you can imagine an even higher level of reliance on traditional knowledge where, you know, if the researcher had not worked with the source community and had access to traditional knowledge, um, either the invention would not have been developed in the first place or that the development of the invention would have taken significantly more time or resources. And so in those instances, I argue um, we should require disclosure um, and failure to disclose should amount to patent invalidity, right? and I argue that the name tree example uh, that I talked about earlier does fall within uh, this grouping of what I call substantial reliance. Um, so in those cases, I think there should be disclosure, and the penalty should be patent invalidity. But then you have these cases in which researchers, um, you know, rely on traditional knowledge. to a a higher degree in that they're not really innovating on the traditional practice, uh, but they're just trying to claim exclusive rights on the traditional practice and hope that the examiner does not find out that there's a traditional practice um, halfway around the world uh, that would invalidate their patent application. So in those instances, introducing, one, I say there should be disclosure, obviously, um, but if disclosure is made, you can imagine that the patent applicant is worried that um, their patent will be invalidated easily because you know, in the face of the traditional practice being disclosed, the examiner would say, you have not in- invented anything here, and therefore you do not deserve to get a patent right. Um, and so for those types of applicants, we need to introduce a penalty that's harsher, harsher if you will, or, or um, at a higher level than pat- patent invalidity um, to encourage them to disclose that information um, in the face of the risk of patent invalidity. And so in those instances, I suggest that uh, legislators introduce uh, fines or disgorgement of profits uh, as harsher uh, penalties to encourage those types of obligations. So
0: your proposal strikes me as really like a clever and elegant solution to a problem in particularly in relation to information disclosure and the efficiency of the patent system. What about implementation? I mean, do we need legislation like specifying that this is how the patent office should treat disclosure or... Are there ways that the patent office could do that on an administrative level?
1: Um, I do believe that, uh, you know, the best ideal way to address this issue is um, kind of amending the patent, the U.S. Patent Act, to say that uh, traditional knowledge um, is explicitly required to be disclosed in the patent application. And the reason for that is that, you know, in the paper, I talk about this you know troubling kind of trend where... Um, Source communities or countries that used to be uh, sources of uh, information and genetic resources, biodiversity, are closing down, um, and so the U.S. patent system is thought to be part of the problem there, um, to the extent that you know uh, applicants in the U.S. patent system are gaining exclusive rights on traditional knowledge that uh, source communities believe is unfair, um, and so. This bold move of reforming the U.S. patent system uh, by introducing this explicit requirement that traditional knowledge be disclosed um, in the the U.S. Patent Act would give a strong signal to communities around the world to say, you know, this feature of the U.S. US patent system that you think is problematic has now addressed that situation. Uh, And so it would help in kind of undoing this protectionist trend and convincing source communities to open up their markets to researchers from the U.S., uh, but also from other countries, um, and so you know, one of the reasons I think that the uh, you know the requirements should be explicitly disclosed in the U.S. Patent Act um, is that it it just sends the strong signal to other countries and communities um, that other types of reforms might not do, um, and so that's one. But I I follow that argument with with kind of an alternative argument of saying you know I do realize that the kind of the political economy of the situation means that uh, their vested interests, um, you know, for example, pharmaceutical lobbying interest would make the case that uh, introduction or reform of the Patent Act is unjustified. Uh, and therefore, you know, realistically speaking, uh, the odds seem to be stacked against uh, advocates of uh, change in terms of, you know, changing the Patent Act. Um, and so the second argument I make is, you know, really, when you look at the current disclosure requirement, because it's robust and and, and broad, um, traditional knowledge is arguably uh, already required. And so the U.S. uh, Patent Office does have a power to explain, um, you know, the rules uh, in in its guideline, uh, the Manual of Patent um, Examination uh, document. And and that document is, is kind of, uh, updated frequently um, and you know, doesn't require consultation with community members and stakeholders. Uh, and really what the USPTO there is is doing is to basically explain what's already required. And I think that seems to be the case here uh, to basically say uh, you know, after the American Invents Act, um, you know, undocumented knowledge outside of the US is part of the patent examination process. And so to explicitly say patent applicants that rely on traditional knowledge currently do have an obligation to uh, disclose traditional knowledge would be sufficient. Um, and so you see other examples of the U.S. Patent Office saying this, right? So um, it follows this traditional, this this broader requirement of disclosure um, with specific in explicit requirements of disclosure. For example, it says if the researcher has used commercial databases, um, then the researcher has to disclose that fact to the U.S. Patent Office um, and tell the, the patent examiner that they've relied on a commercial database and give the examiner access to that commercial database. Um, and so when I, when I think of the rationale behind the specific disclosure requirement following this general robust disclosure requirement, it is to make the case that we know that you have this general obligation, but in case you're kind of not clear about the specific requirements of disclosure, uh, we're you know making making sure that you you know that you have that obligation. Um, and I think the you know, if, when you see the dynamics between um, researchers and source communities and patent examiners in the traditional knowledge context, uh, that's really what's happening is the researchers saying you know. I did not know traditional knowledge needed to be disclosed because it's undocumented, it's challenging to disclose. Um, And so in case you're not aware, we're making it super clear that you have to disclose traditional knowledge. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, that makes
0: sense to me too. So I'm on, in, in closing, um, I was wondering if we could take a step back and kind of talk just briefly about how your paper fits into the scholarship on biopiracy more, more generally, because you, you sort of mentioned in the paper and it kind of is consistent with my sense of the literature that the bulk of the writing in the area kind of largely comes at the problem from a sort of moral rights mm-hmm. perspective, um, looking at sort of the, the you know, how different countries deserve to be able to be treated and what they deserve to be able to claim. And and, and you characterize your paper as coming at the question from a kind of more welfareist perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about why you thought that, that was an important move and also maybe whether the proposal that you're making will also result in some higher degree of equitable redistribution of the positive externalities associated with
1: innovation. Um, yes. So I actually think that's one of the kind of main uh, contributions that I hope my, my scholarship generally um, brings to the table, uh, which is, you know, When people look at the relationship between multinational corporations that have resources, financial resources, human resource capital, and uh, on on the one hand, on on the other hand, source communities, indigenous peoples, local communities, um, it's really easy to see the equity issues that arise there, Right, considering the history of these parties, considering the power dynamics between those two parties. um, It's easy to see that there is a huge um, kind of, Equity issue there, a distributive justice issue there, um, and so I I do agree with a lot of the scholarship out there um, m- trying to make the point that equity does uh, kind of signal that we should do something different uh, in this relationship, um, and so I do buy into that relation that scholarship. But but when I see the scholarship, I think it's missing this welfareist angle uh, because really it's not because. Companies need to be nice to source communities that they have to protect their knowledge or, or that the law should protect their knowledge. In addition to uh, it being equitable, it being fair to recognize the knowledge of source communities, it's also efficient and um, you know useful for innovation policy to actually make sure that the uh, original sources of information are encouraged to conserve and disclose that knowledge. Um, and so that's the point that I try to make here is to say, It's not just because we're trying to be nice to source communities. It's also in the self-interested way, um, because it's relevant for uh, innovation in general, uh, that we have to recognize the value of traditional knowledge and encourage the people that conserve it and have been conserving uh, conserving it for centuries to um, invest in the conservation work that they do, but also to disclose it to outsiders, right? So to undo this protectionist trend, uh, we do, I think, need to protect uh, traditional knowledge. And so some of my other papers do make that point um, that, you know, the kind of the welfareist pro- kind of argument or theory that I develop here is supposed to be complementary to the equity and distributive justice uh, rationals that have been uh, adopted by other scholars. Um, and to respond to your question of, you know, why is this needed? Um, the the discussions around biodiversity conservation, the protection of traditional knowledge have been happening uh, since the uh, 1990s. Uh, so mid-1990s, you have the 1994 uh, Convention on Biodiversity that recognizes the, uh, the right of communities over their traditional knowledge and genetic resources. Um, but that conversation really, ha- ha- you know, did not fruitfully result in any realistic um, international legal framework or practice of recognizing uh, the right of communities and sharing profits with them uh, in exchange for more access to traditional knowledge and genetic resources. So that was the intention, but really that conversation did not progress. Uh, And I think one of the reasons that a conversation did not result in a fruitful uh, scenario is because I think – Advocates of traditional protection have only used uh, equity and distributive justice. I shouldn't say only because there are a number of scholars out there that use the welfare's angle. But really, when you look at the scholarship, it's just screaming for uh, kind of this other argument to be made. Um, So, for example, if you look at the World Intellectual Property Organization, um, there's a committee of the the organization that has been talking about a convention on traditional knowledge uh, for more than 15 years. Uh, but that conversation has not kind of resulted in a kind of practically applicable convention in part because i I think uh, it doesn't appeal to a certain stakeholder, which is kind of the the industry, if you will, the firms or or, or you know countries that respond to uh, innovators, if you will, developed countries that um, are affected by the lobbying power of innovators and industries. Uh, have not bought into this framework because the case has not been made, that it's not just because we're trying to be nice to source communities, uh, it also makes sense uh, in terms of purely economic terms to protect traditional knowledge and make sure that the innovation relationship um, is more collaborative as opposed to a relationship filled with mistrust, which which currently is the case.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Aman. It's been a real pleasure talking right. to you about your paper today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. It's been fun.
0: I'm Elm Hill, I'm big and strong. I chop down elm trees all day long. Of these, I place with a smack on an Elm Hill quality all meat pack. The greatest wieners, yes sirree, Cause wieners are our specialty. They taste so fine, the flavors true. Back in pack to stay fresh for you. Bacon, smoked and very lean, ham's the best you've ever seen. Filled with Elm Hill tasty light a treat to make your day just right. Hater dogs and barbecue. Fifty-four meats all for you So when you're at your grocery And you see there the lone elm tree You'll know the package that it mounts Is Elm Hill Meats where quality counts